You're listening to a podcast on Catholic Saints. This podcast is produced by the Augustan Institute, an apostolate helping Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Hello and welcome to Catholic Saints. Today we are talking to Dr. Elizabeth Klein. Thank you for being here, Dr. Klein. Thanks for having me. Yes, and today we are talking about St. Patrick. He is a beloved saint of many people. What do we need to know about him? Well, St. Patrick is a patristic saint, so he falls into my favorite time period, which is one yes. reason I wanted to talk Tell about Tell us, him. what is the patristic period, please? So the patristic period, I mean, people will debate when it ends, but basically it's somewhere from like the year 200 to the year six or 700, depending on how so you when, decide to when break it down. when someone says early church father, that's, that's yeah, the area. Yeah, that's the period they're that's talking about. St. So. Patrick, early church father. He's an early church father. Okay. And there's a lot of sort of legendary material surrounding St. Patrick and lots of famous stories, but I thought it'd be really um, awesome to talk about kind of the historical Patrick and um, the material that St. Patrick left us, because mm-hmm. St. Patrick actually left us a couple pieces of writing, and they're short. Uh, but they are very interesting. So he left two works that um, are kind of securely attributed to him. Mm-hmm. One is his confession, mm-hmm. uh, which is some kind of defense of himself. It seems that maybe he was accused of something maybe by some other bishops. So it's partly autobiographical. Um, and so that's where we get kind of really solid evidence of his life's work. And Wait, another... Can sorry, I ask a question? Mm-hmm. Was there a, a common... Was it common back then to do something like this, like a confession? Because I'm thinking about St. Augustine's confessions. Was this like a no. a common practice, per no, se? No, okay. no, it wasn't a common practice, I wouldn't say. Although the idea of writing a defense of yourself was a was. common practice. Yep. Okay. So um, the autobiographical nature of it isn't necessarily super common. Got it. Um, okay. Yeah, uh, so that's really interesting. And then there's also a short letter that he wrote to someone named... Caroticus, great name. Who we don't know who it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, could have potentially been a king. Some people have tried to identify it with different figures, but whoever this person is, um, raided one of the churches in St. Patrick's diocese and carried off and killed Christians, even though they themselves were Christian. So Patrick is, you know, condemning this. <laughs> As one should. Okay. Did he? Uh, so he was a bishop. Was he a bishop when he wrote both of these things? Do you know? Do we know? Yeah. So he wrote, so this is written late in his life. He says that in the confession that he's writing it as an old man. Okay. Uh, and he even apologizes that his Latin isn't amazing yeah. uh, and that he didn't kind of dare put anything down uh, before. So yeah, he's older, okay. uh, kind of at the end of his career okay. uh, when he's writing the And confession. if someone wanted to look up how they could read this confession, is it available online? If they That's wanted a good to find question. It? I don't know if it's available free online, but you could okay. look up the confession of St. Patrick. And I know it's available very inexpensively because Google it. You, you, I bought it and read it. it. Nice. So, uh, so from so just some things about his life that he tells mm-hmm. us from his confession um, is that so he was born in Roman Britain. So okay. this is kind of the southeast part of Britain, which was under Roman control okay. at the time, uh, and so Christianity had spread there early. I mean, basically Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire by the third century, even mm-hmm. to like the far places in the empire. So Christianity was there, but it was kind of still a minority, kind of weird thing from the Mm. East, considered by the people there. But Patrick tells us that his father was a deacon and his grandfather was a priest. So he's already kind of like a... Yeah, he's in a Christian family. He's in a Christian family. So Christianity in these parts is early. It's not totally everywhere else. What is it up against? Is this just various forms of paganism? Would that be the competing religions? Yeah, right. So various forms of paganism. And in some of the later legendary lives of Patrick, you see him kind of like doing battle with the Druids and things. 
Uh, and it's very clear that especially in sort of Britain, Ireland, and Scotland, that like it was hard fought against paganism. It was deeply rooted. Uh, and so see people. Yes. So really the people think about the conversion of England as happening yeah. through kind of more Irish missionaries later mm -hmm. and also um, Augustine of Canterbury. Mm -hmm. But it was there earlier as okay. Patrick kind of witnesses. But the fact that it wasn't super strong is mm -hmm. also witnessed by Patrick because it seems he wasn't really practicing his faith. Yeah. Uh, you know, in his early life, because he says even though his dad was a deacon and his grandfather was a priest, um, he was captured by pirates when he was 16 and said that he was like a great sinner and wasn't, yep. you know, turning to the Lord. It wasn't sort of active in his faith. Uh, but that experience of being sold into slavery uh, made him really turn to the Lord um, and seek the Lord and had a kind of sincere conversion uh, through that this is a comforting story for any parents out there who are faithful Catholics and their children are maybe wayward. Maybe you'll get, they'll get kidnapped by pirates. They might. <laughs> pirates can be a grace. Yes. I do think as a, you know, obviously we, we know this, you know, that suffering can be a place where God can come in and that, mm -hmm. you know, having difficult experiences in life can be a very valuable thing. But it's a good thing to remember that that yeah, it is. is just, that's true and it's always been the case. Mm -hmm. uh, and that the forms of suffering we experience are... Not as bad as in some periods of history. Yeah, I mean, no kidding. Grant, I mean, Patrick, yeah, he talks about being oh, captured goodness. multiple times. This yep. isn't the only time that he's captured. And then the fact that his letter talks about other Christians being captured, it seems like there was a lot of like... There's a lot of capturing. Pillaging, yeah. you know, and of course, this is even before the Viking conquest with more yeah. capturing and pillaging. Um, so he's captured by the pirates. How old was he? He's 16. Right, he's young. Okay. So then what happens after the pirates? So he as a servant or slave is a shepherd. Okay. Um, and he spends most of his time in the sheep with the sheep uh, on the field. And he says he takes time for prayer. So he just really is out in this field mm -hmm. praying kind of night and day and having this sort of sincere turning to so the Lord. Can I ask though? So he was, when he was captured by the pirates, was he a faithful guy? No. Okay. So then he's captured by the pirates. So what happens is, do, do we have any idea what happens between him getting captured and then being a shepherd and he's praying and he's becoming a more faithful person. He doesn't really say any, it to too much. Yeah, he, yeah, he just says that, like, that experience of kind of, ex you know, this suffering, he just says, well, I deserve this because I'm a sinner. Mm. And that kind of kind causes him. an awakening him, of conscience. Yeah, an of awakening sorts. of conscience. Yeah. And then, you know, he's kind of afforded this, like, weird kind of retreat situation yeah. almost away from everyone he knows, away from, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, you can think, like, away from all of his friends, away from all of his possessions, away from anything that mm -hmm. would tempt him to think of anything other than God. It's, it's so interesting. I feel like there's a couple, uh, there's a diary of Eddie Hilsom. I don't know if you've heard of this. She was a, a Jewish woman that was um, captured during the Nazi occupation. Um, but I've heard of this in other places too, that people who are captured and put into solitary confinement or yeah, they're just captured, that they can often come to an awareness of their own sinfulness. And maybe even if they were unjustly mm -hmm. captured or whatever, they come to this realization of like, no, I I am a sinner and I, this is just not in that like it was right that I'm being captured by this group of people for this reason, but it is just in that, yes, I have done harm. There's like an awareness of sinfulness, which in- Yeah, that's really interesting. It's, it's, it's almost as if like he turns to God to ask God, like, why or why God is allowing this, and then right. finds it, like, well, what do I really have to say why, to God? Who says why not? Like, yeah. why someone else and not me? It's just, yeah, it's a really interesting thing and that I I've think, never experienced. Yeah, there's this kind of beautiful, like, it, I don't know if he's he's intentionally recalling this, but it really reminded me of, like, King David. Hmm. 
you know, when Samuel comes to find the, the king to anoint or whatever, David's not even there because he's the youngest and he's out in the field. Yeah. You know, David, of course, the reputation for praying the Psalms mm -hmm. and being very contemplative, it just, you know, it's just a very beautiful picture mm -hmm. that he kind of had this horrible experience, but that it also afforded him this like complete freedom from yeah. all of his attachments and made him a very prayerful man. And you can either go one of two directions in that. When terrible stuff happens to you, you either close in, get more angry, more bitter, more mad at God or other people, or you come to that realization that leads to it in a very paradoxical way, more freedom, which mm -hmm. is here, what happened to Patrick. Yeah, and so then, he's in the field. Yeah, and then this leads to literal freedom because, yeah. you know, he's, he's praying kind of night and day out in the field with the sheep and he receives a vision from God that he will um, be able to escape his captivity mm -hmm. and sort of like the port he's supposed to go to. So Patrick escapes and finds a boat and he doesn't really tell us exactly where he is or how the journey works, but yeah. he has a very treacherous, long journey uh, back to his hometown. Mm -hmm. um, and part of his experience is of almost dying of starvation with kind mm -hmm. of the sailors on the ship. And he prays to God for food and they like encounter a herd of swine um, and he converts the sailors. So he has his first missionary experience yeah. uh, on his journey home. And then, yeah, he, he makes his way back home. But he really emphasizes then this divine call to go back to Ireland later in his life to preach the gospel. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting because we get a kind of like his, the sense of his family story here. I mean, I think a lot of saint stories, you we get only something like you have in the gospels where Jesus says like, "Come follow me," and then everyone drops yeah. everything and does what he says. But you do get a little bit more background of Patrick and like the difficulty that it was for him to follow this call because. Yeah. He, he has this vision um, or this dream where someone hands him a letter where the voice of Ireland uh, is begging him to return. And his family's like, what are you talking about? Like you, you've been away from our family for yeah. six years. You were captured. You were captured. Like this wasn't, yeah. yeah we've like, we haven't seen you and you're going to like go mm. back to a country where you're never going to see us again. And his, again, his family's Christian yeah. as far as we know. And so I think it's really interesting, even such an early figure to like get a little bit behind that kind of legendary heroic act. It is heroic, mm -hmm. but it isn't like easy. It's not just like no. this very triumphant, you know, yes, I will go and all the Irish will just fall down at my feet. You yep. know, it's, it's clearly uh, very difficult. Um, and he, he talks about, especially the difficulty of being a foreigner, mm -hmm. you know, going into Ireland and trying to preach to the people uh, and how difficult that was. Um, but there's this kind of sense and can I add, because uh, yeah, there's other, I'm thinking about St. Augustine of Canterbury, some of the other um, early fathers who go into pagan territory. Like uh, evangelization back then was not what we would often think of it today, where it's like, I'm trying to talk to someone in a relatively civil manner and uh, explain the truth of the faith or, and maybe have some like argument or something that this was like a dangerous venture. There's not like, the, I mean... It, it wasn't just conversation. So for him to make a decision like this to go evangelize these people, this is like, oh, yeah, I could probably will die. Like it's yeah. And I was just going to say, actually, right before that, this is perfect for what I was just going to say is like, especially I, like Britain and Ireland are seen as like the edge of the known world. Mm. Right. Beyond that is the sea. Yeah. They don't discover the new world for a long, long time. Yeah. So as far as anyone's concerned, it's like. This is it. Uh, that's it. That's like yeah. the end, edge of the world. And right, the edge of the world was always kind of considered like that's Satan's territory. Hmm. Right. The farther you get from like the center, it's like more chaos, more chaos. Yeah. The devil's out there out to get you. And a lot of these early saints, it's like they're really going into enemy territory. What they see is spiritual, like sort mm -hmm. of enemy territory um, to do this, to do this work. Mm -hmm. um, and he really he really emphasizes that this 
was a call from God and not from himself, possibly mm-hmm. because he's defending himself. Um, yeah. But I do also think there's a kind of a sense of like, who would, who would choose this for themselves? No, who, no, who wouldn't just stay home? Who, who after escape, escaping slavery from He's these like, foreign I went people, enough. Yeah, yeah. would go back to try to make them Christian? Like, yep. what? That's inspiring. What? Who would want to do this? So um, obviously. St. Patrick is credited as converting Ireland and mm-hmm. that he's called even um, in the East, he's called equal to the apostles. Which, oh, interesting. Yeah. So that, wow. fr- so that title equal to the apostles is used for anybody who's said to like convert a whole people. Mm. So it's kind of the idea that like the apostles were sent out to the nations. And so they're like the apostles in bringing whole That's nations cool. to Christ. Uh, and that might be like a bit of an overstatement because Pope Celestine had already sent mm-hmm. around the same time a bishop named Palladius uh, to Ireland to evangelize Ireland, but it doesn't seem like he was super successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so certainly like the crediting of the conversion of Irish pact is not made up. He, yep. he says himself that he can, that he baptized himself thousands of people. Yeah. Wow. Um, and that's, that's a lot of people at this that's time, a lot of people. especially in a sparsely kind of populated, um, place and his later lives, especially talk about his kind of work to, work with women and the poor. Mm-hmm. And this is a really common theme in early Christian evangelization is that often it seems that Christianity appealed to the downtrodden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for that reason was often suspected, right? Like people who can, could kind of seen as charlatans who are like tricking the, like the simpletons. Yeah. Uh, but I think hmm. it's, I think it's very beautiful because it always meant sort of the mission call was to, often the, like the poorest of the poor first and the lowest yeah. first, which seems just very fitting given sort of Christ's omission, the people right. Christ chose to call as his first disciples. Uh, and of course, you know, kings and all that convert too, and they were imp- important right. to missionize. But it does really seem like it was kind of always like a grassroots venture. <laughs> yeah, like it's to the least of these, yeah. Yeah, and it's often women who are widowed who kind of take up the monastic vows mm-hmm. early and they become you know, sort of um, people who act in charity to the poor. And also, if you think about, like, it always sounds noble to, like, go to the poor. Yeah. But, I mean, if you got to think about, like, what do the poor look like in, yeah. like, rural, early medieval yeah. Ireland? Like, this no, like, is it's not... really... Yeah. This is not, like, these are people who are, like, squalid. Yep. There's a... It's in the Brothers Karamazov. I don't exactly remember where, but there's a great line... That is something along the lines of love in the abstract or love as an ideal is like a grand and beautiful thing, but love in the concrete is a harsh and dreadful thing. That like putting love into action, like loving the poor, it's actually like very messy, very difficult, very hard. And that's something that like all of us, when we run into that at all the time, mm-hmm. it's like it's so easy to be like, oh, I'm going to go evangelize. I'm going to go love XYZ person or a group of people. And then you do it and you're like, oh, this is like you just realize all this stuff rises up and you're like, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And especially when, you know, Patrick's not a native. Mm -hmm. So trying to reach people who have different beliefs that are very at odds with what the Christian faith is trying to preach. And I mean, being up against too, I mean, preaching the gospel in a a land with so much suffering. I mean, ancient people, basically it's like, your God was your only, like, he was your doctor. He was your, mm. like, financial aid. Like, if you if things were going bad, you had to, like, placate the correct gods to make it go mm-hmm. right. So when you're preaching a very different gospel of, like, embracing suffering and mm-hmm. that, you know, God isn't just, like, a candy machine that mm-hmm. you get all your blessings out of, that's, that's very hard. It's very hard in a time when, like, 
plagues, you know, mm-hmm. ravage the land, or you get stolen by pirates on your baptismal yeah. day, as yeah. in his letter. And that's why the saints are so great, because they give us the witness of, that is credible, where it's like someone like St. Patrick could come to the Irish people and uh, preach the gospel and say, this God is worthy of your praise and adoration. And when they're like, well, who are you to say? And it's like, oh, I've been captured. I've been hungry. I've been where you're at. And it gives a credible witness. And I feel like the saints are always like taking on the infirmities of the people that they're evangelizing because that's where you gain credibility. Uh, And I feel like you can see that in St. Patrick. And I think also St. Patrick, something he kind of witnesses in his ministry is that the gospel is is has always been countercultural. Yeah. Like we think about it now as, you know, it's so against the culture, and it is. Obviously, we have unique challenges to our own age, but it's not like any missionary ever walked into a mission territory that was like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, this is exactly what we were looking for. We yep. <laughs> we totally understand. This makes perfect sense. Of course, we believe all people feel the call from God, and so mm-hmm. there is always a kind of natural appeal of the gospel. Yeah. But the gospel is hard. Yeah, and there he are. Uh, Patrick already is complaining about the apostate picks who is like a you know group in Scotland. Uh-huh. And so to think that there's already been a group evangelized and who have like reverted <laughs> by the fifth century when he is in Ireland. And yeah. part of it has, it talks about apostasy, which was one of the major sins of the early church. Can right? you define apostasy for apostasy us? Apostasy is renouncing the faith. Okay. So uh, because like when times got hard, people went back to their old gods, right? Yep. It's like, oh, well, my daughter's sick and the Christian God's not healing uh, she's her. She's better. So yep. I'm going to sacrifice some cows to the idol I used to and see if that works. It's so easy to revert back. I mean, this is the story of Israel being like, I, I'd rather go back to Egypt. I know it was tough, but this is worse. <laughs> like, uh, take me back. Yeah. And we do that in our own lives. It's good to pay attention to. So, um, okay, I have two questions. Okay. First one, the snakes. So... There is often associated with St. Patrick that he drove the snakes out of Ireland. What what do we have to say about such a thing? So the story is about Patrick driving the snakes out of Ireland is until like the 8th century. So 8th? Yeah, so 200 years it's after Patrick's yep. death. And also apparently there are evidence of people noticing the lack of snakes in like the 3rd century. So the likelihood of Patrick mm, having been responsible tough. for driving the snakes out of Ireland is not very high. Although You're ruining all <laughs> of those that are Irish that are listening. You're like, no. <laughs> Although I do think it is a kind of like, it's a really beautiful spiritual image if you think about, obviously, the serpent as the primordial image of the <sighs> devil. stuck. Yep. Uh, and him kind of bringing this, this new faith against great resistance. Yep. And they would have really seen it as demonic resistance. I think it's still cool. It's awesome. That's why it's so tragic. But it's okay. It's a good image that we can keep. Okay. But in better news, yes. the shamrock also tell probably is shamrock. not St. Patrick. I don't know if we'd call that better news. Okay, so tell us what, what's going on with the shamrock. Why is that associated with St. Patrick? I don't know. I only was able to do a tiny bit of research. It seems like it's like a 17th or 18th century thing to We're have talking Patrick real with late. the shamrock. Yeah. And apparently the shamrock didn't have any particular special significance in Ireland before that. So Ugh. I'm not sure... What the deal is, I mean, Patrick clearly has a very strong Trinitarian confession at yep. the beginning of the confession. This is the hallmark of orthodoxy, obviously, and also still very important as Arianism, which mm-hmm. is a rejection of Christ's divinity, is still present in nearby Gaul. So it's very mm-hmm. important that he confess the Trinity, um, and he talks about preaching the triune God. And we also know that the idea of, like, trifold or triplicity was um, a really resonant image for mm-hmm. sort of Irish native religion, pagan religion. 
Uh, and so there's no doubt that he preached the Trinity and that the Trinity was important. So it's not that it's unfitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I say it's good news because I'm a theologian and the shamrock isn't like the best image okay, for the Trinity. We have to know? talk about that very quickly. Okay, so for any of you that don't know, uh, Dr. Klein has written a book called What Every Catholic Should Know, God. You can buy it on Catholic Market. You also did a Lexio course? Yes. Lexio God, that's a video course, so you don't have to read stuff. But you'll hear a little bit more about this. Give us like a little bit, why is the shamrock a bad image of the Trinity? Because the Trinity is not divided into parts. Okay. So if you remove one clover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't can't separate. It's not just three parts of one thing. Yep. Okay. It's so not like a three in one. That's not exactly. That was a teaser, but you can learn more in Lexio God and what every Catholic should know God. Okay, so just to close up here, what are some major lessons that uh, we ourselves today, the faithful, can look at St. Patrick and maybe take into our own spiritual lives? I think one of the main things is that um, the life of a Christian is out of a living sacrifice. Mm. And Patrick uses that phrase a couple times in his confession, and also a very early hymn in honor of him calls him a living sacrifice. Uh, And that that can take many different forms. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think if we pay attention to our own lives, we will see little ways in which we're being conformed to Christ. Yeah. Maybe even literally, you know, you have like him not just taking the form of a slave, but Patrick actually is literally a slave. A slave yeah. And he's, that isn't kind of lost on him, that mm-hmm. his conversion is through this experience of mm-hmm. slavery. And so I think that's a really important lesson. And, and, and to remember that that has kind of always been the case. The way of the cross has always been the way to Christ. It is, yeah. Whether, you know, yesterday, today, forever. That is great to make ourselves a living sacrifice. So thank you, Dr. Klein, for all of your wisdom. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. We will see you next time on Catholic Saints. You can watch these interviews in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustan Institute and Ignatius Press with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, eBooks, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.